May is drawing to a close. The late spring storm of Maymester is approaching its end. Early summer weather is definitely here in South Carolina, and there are rumors of early summer produce. I'm hearing that a few squash and early peaches are turning up in small amounts on a few market tables for the early birds. Cool spring crops are wrapping up. This includes the ethereal ivory of Japanese turnips and radishes. They're both full of snap and flavor and crunch and great for eating raw. Or you could try roasting them. If you're not a fan of the peppery zip of a radish or the raw earthiness of a turnip, you can split them, toss them with olive oil, and season them and roast them at a high heat. They're a totally different experience, gentler in flavor and chewier, yet still juicy. You can burn through a bunch or three in no time. And you can make a really different spring pesto with the peppery greens. Why not? I'm Claire Houle, a writer and instructional designer at the Center for Teaching Excellence at Midlands Technical College here in Columbia, South Carolina. This season, I'm following the roots and filaments of our teaching and support of the complex skill of learning to learn. What skills do you teach? How do you teach them? How can we connect our teaching for our students and each other? This is Instructional Ecology. are so many positive and seemingly neutral components to learning that sometimes it could be easy to stay in the sunshine. We're coming off an episode about play, a very dead poet society, free your mind kind of unleashing. And we always find value in following student and teacher joy. However, let's take a turn. Today, we deal with consequences, with heart stops. We travel from heights depths. Today, I want to look at failure as a part of learning, specifically failure in higher education. Failure can be very hard to look at directly. It is painful. It can have a great deal of emotion embedded in it. It's disruptive to our dreams and plans. It's also inevitable. And it's built into learning. I'm thinking of something Thomas Henry Huxley wrote that the great tragedy of science is the slaying of a beautiful hypothesis by an ugly fact. We have ideas and goals. We strive. And sometimes we don't win. We don't complete. We don't pass. It doesn't work out. And when I say failure, I mean that extreme, not setback, nor frustration, which we've explored a little together. I mean hard stop failure. It could be a quiz or a test or a course or a program. A failure has a finitude built in. When you're learning and fail at something, you must decide what to do next. And sometimes that decision is made for you. In a syllabus or a program description, there are usually parameters and consequences for failure. Sometimes you're allowed to try that same challenge or one very similar again. Sometimes that failure means that you can no longer continue to try this particular challenge in this particular place. Sometimes failure means that you are asked to leave. So how do we handle failure as part of learning as an institution, as a profession, as individuals in this instructional community? I'd like to come to these questions in some fresh ways because I don't know the answers. So in my usual way, 
I found some good people to ask. Today, I invite you to listen in on an Instructional Ecology First, a three-way conversation between people in different places and responsibilities in the college. I'll be there in my capacity as a member of the Center for Teaching Excellence, faculty advocate, and steward of excellent instruction. We'll also have a professor who offers direct service to students through instruction, and we'll have an advisor offering direct service to students through formal guidance. We're going to get directly into the deep water here, far below the sunny shallows. We'll work together to get a better understanding of how students arrive at failure and tease out what we find they need around failure. I'm really excited to offer you this conversation, and I hope it enriches your thinking and maybe takes you to some new possibilities in your practice, whatever that may be. I think we find that while higher education may often flinch from deep inquiry into failure, conversation about it can be incredibly generative as we share our stories and experiences and come to some new understandings and ways forward. Here it is, a conversation about failure. All right, here we are. Gentlemen, I've asked you here today to talk about failure. <laughs> so thank you for joining me on this, this really big topic. Uh, if you would, uh, I'd love for you to introduce yourselves so our listeners can come to know you. All right. My name is William Golston, and um, I'm an academic career advisor um, for the STEM department um, at Midlands Technical College. I've been here coming up on a year in March. I am TJ Kimmel. I'm a political science professor, and I started in 2017 full-time, although I was an adjunct a little bit before that, starting in the fall of 2014. So I, my first question would be, why are we here today? Why is this so important? Because when we first began to have this conversation in one of the interconnections meetings, the two of you were ready to talk about failure in a way that um, I hadn't quite encountered yet. So I'd love to know, why do you think, and particular to your perspective, either personally or professionally, why is failure such a great and important topic to get to and to spend time with here in our mutual work? Well, I think as human beings, we all fail. And a lot of people in academia went through their undergraduate work without failure. I, I think the, the, you know, the overwhelming majority of people who end up in higher ed are people who, at least in their associates and bachelors, had it fairly smooth sailing in comparison to what happens to a lot of us um, where the waters are a lot choppier. Um, and I had experienced um, failure in undergrad. And when I was in my last semester before I, as I tell my students, spectacularly failed out, um, one of my professors at NC State, I was taking Spanish 101, and he was telling the story about how he had done that, how he had had he had gone to undergrad, it had not gone well, and that he had left and taken a break and he came back. And I was already like leaning pretty heavily towards 
not uh, returning uh, in the next semester and just sort of like taking a break and figuring out what I wanted to do. And hearing him say that and explain, oh, you can leave, but you can also come back was a very um, illuminating thing. And during that time while I was out of undergrad and just working, I would come back to that. And I would remember, well, Senora Swan said that, you know, it, it worked for him and he's, you know, he was a full-time faculty member at Wake Tech, which I ended up going to um, on my way back to NC State. And he taught, um, uh, part-time at NC State uh, in Spanish. And uh, and so that just stuck with me and it was sort of a reminder of, you know, you hear people a lot of times they'll say, oh, if you don't finish it, you'll never go back and do it. But uh, Steve Swan told us that that was a choice, right? That nothing is preordained in failure. So this is personally important to you that it's important to talk about failure because it's a it's a part of your biography. Yeah, I would not be here today if it if it weren't for my willingness to look at failure as just a blip instead of a character trait. Um, I definitely would not be here today. I, I, I don't know if I would be here without Steve Swan at NC State, who I ended up and you know, I mean, I that was a semester I failed out, so I didn't even finish that class with him. But when I came back my last semester in undergrad, I took my last Spanish class with him because, you know, it felt like a very full circle kind of moment to do that. And he was still a good professor then too. Our biographies are are a part of us. And sometimes I think we have the sense that maybe our professional lives should, you know, be separate from our personal lives. But you've already just told us that there was a professor who made a huge difference for you by talking about his own life. And now you're telling his story as part of your story. So we end up with this long chain of our interlocking biographies. They become significant to each other. Certainly. And, you know, I mean, when I tell the brief version of the story, you know, I don't, I don't go into all the nitty gritty details about, you know, how I spectacularly failed out. But I just tell them I did, and then I worked in retail and then came back and put a lot of work into it and did really well when I returned. Um, but I've had a number of students over the years tell me that they were relieved to hear that story. And the same way that I was relieved, they're hearing it as they're coming back. You know, I don't know, I'm, there may be a student like me uh, who's heard it on the way out. And maybe, you know, it's ringing around in their head right now. And they're thinking, well, one day, Dr. Kimmel told me I could come back. And, you know, maybe they will, who knows? Well, I know that this is also something really important for you as well, that you are willing to share your own personal experience and you feel that that has a big impact. T tell us your, your story and, and how you use that. It took me a while to really talk about it simply because, you know, when I was young coming up, I was supposed to be this brilliant kid and everybody thinks you're this prodigy and you're so smart. You make all days and all that other stuff and you don't really have that, um, mentality to study and do other things because it just you know without studying you could just if I can make bees without studying why would I study and stuff like that and you think a lot of times you can still carry that mentality on to the next place and you do good for a little while but then you catch yourself because you haven't built those habits 
And that's kind of like what happened to me. I didn't build those traditional study habits that I should have. And also I didn't, I wasn't really enthused with my major because I went to USC um, to pursue, I'll say, I want to be an electrical engineer because I knew my granddad was. And that's a lot of times I, I talk to, like when I talk to students, I say, make sure you know what you're doing because you want to do it because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just did it because somebody told me. And I, I proceeded, like, like TJ was saying, I was failing spectacularly because that's not really what I was wanting to do. And it was a, it was a point where I got kind of embarrassed because people expected so much of me. And I was like, man, I got to, you know, I, I, I'm on academic suspension from USC. You know, and then I'm like, well, I got to go to Midlands Tech and kind of build myself back up. So I was never in completely the mind frame of like, man, you know, it's still always weighed on me. Like, how did I mess up to this point? So uh, uh, going through that process, um, leaving, uh, finishing with Tech and then having to go to South University and getting a um going into business administration and get my bachelor's in business and my master's in business and then going elsewhere, get my master's in education kind of like helped me to be more open about the failure that I had. Cause I wouldn't as willing to talk about it. Cause I felt like, man, I, you know, it, it impacted me, but I didn't realize how sharing the fact that I failed would impact other people until I did, you know, we had a, I was a youth president at my church. And we had like a graduation banquet or a celebration of achievement banquet for our young people. And I kind of, I was speaking at that and I kind of shared, that was the first time I really shared how I did fail, basically. And it made it kind of easier for me to talk about um, failure after that. And then when I, I talked to other people, when I worked other places, when I worked at uh, DJJ and stuff like that, it was easier for me to talk to those young people about failure. And it, I think it kind of makes you more relatable because a lot of times they look at you like, oh, there ain't no way you done. Yeah, I did. You know, it may not be like you did, but I did it. Yeah, I failed too. So it kind of helps you build those relationships of attachment, but also let them look at you like if he can admit what he done messed up, maybe I can admit too in the areas that I messed up and kind of, you know, bring things full circle. You know what I think both of you have described is, um, well, first of all, it just made me think so much about the emotion around failure. It's such an intensely emotional experience. You can't separate your thinking from your feeling when it's happening, right? And, you know, I know that you're both seeing students in that incredibly fraught moment, you know, where they're like, oh my gosh, it's happening. But you know what I hear both of you have done is you have spent time working through that and you've built up this ability to look straight at it, you know, and, and that, that makes me realize how hard it is for us to look directly at failure without that kind of discipline, without that kind of determination. How do you think failure is sort of typically handled in higher education? Like, you know, if a student is failing or getting in trouble or what have you, um, uh, and uh, typically how do you think an institution handles that do they address the emotion? Do they address the failure? Do they put things in place? What what's what's typical? I think sometimes um, students don't know how they will hand, how how they how the institution handles it. They feel, uh, they feel like I got to 
go through this and just get it done. And if I fail, you know, it is what it is. I got to try it again. I think it's good, you know, when institutions have policies to say, well, if you look like you're going to um, do poorly in a class, withdraw from it and, and don't let yourself stay there and um, just fail out. You know, because that because I feel like when they fail out, like when they get WFs, like somebody asked me, they will I get a WF if I fail the class? I think when they get stuff like that with WFs and they see that that's going to affect their GPA in that way, that even makes them even more discouraged. And the fact that they were already doing bad. Now, if I withdraw trying to preserve, you know, trying to preserve myself from continuing to do bad. Now I'm still going to fail the class. You know what I'm saying? So it doesn't make them want to go back and try again or, or look harder or more closely at trying to um, build themselves up for taking the class the next time. Cause I was just telling the student earlier this morning, like if you feel like you're about to fail the class, pull out of the class, but still study what you, you know, study those materials and the things that you need to know for that class. Cause you're going to have to take it again. And then you can kind of prepare yourself and build yourself for the next challenge. And they was worried about, well, when I get WF, I said, nah, you just get a withdrawal. That's one. And not to advertise or promote, or nothing like that, but I'm just telling the truth. That's one great thing about Midlands Technical College is that they let you get a W and you don't have to worry about your GPA just crashing just because you're trying to protect yourself. And I think that's a positive thing, you know, and it helps students build that that mindset. OK, I'm, I, f I may have, you know, had to leave this class right now, but I could still kind of pick back up and, and get it together if I, you know, do everything I need to do in the time allowed. So I think here we kind of do a pretty good job of trying to address it. Not that nobody does a perfect job, but I feel like we do a pretty good job trying to address failures. I think that a lot of the teachers and of course the advisors and other areas of the school try to let students know that it's, you know, make sure you're talking to the proper people that can help you when you feel like you're in those type of situations where you think you're going to, you know, from a class aspect, if you think you're going to fail or anything like that. TJ, what do you think? Um, and you can answer this like just sort of your, you you had, um, both of you have had a lot of experience in a number of institutions. Can you sort of generalize about failure in, in higher ed or, you know, kind of like what's the usual discourse before we really get into yours? I think Will brought up a lot of good points about how there are some systems that are better than others. To, to kind of deal with it. Um, <clears throat> something I think that the that all of higher ed is not really good at is sort of what Will was talking about, how, you know, you got to build yourself back up to try again. It's sort of dealing with the emotions and the, you know, how down it will make you when you fail, right? Which is a very understandable emotional process. Um, you know, I mean, when I was in undergrad and was failing out spectacularly, I it was humiliating, right? Uh, like, you know, like Will, I'd been a great student in high school, and here I was, um, you know, I was supposed to do it, be doing a whole lot better. I was supposed to be, you know, X. And that, in order to face that, that requires an emotional reckoning with who you want to be, what you want to do. And to like, you know, I, I didn't have as much with what Will said, where he was sort of doing what other people wanted him 
to do, um, but I did have some of that. And you have to sort of take a step back and take ownership of your life. Um, and sometimes failure can be an opportunity to do that if you have missed that chance previously to like be like, well, I'm in control. I'm going to pick out what I want to do here. But I think that there is a not flippancy in higher ed when about it, but it is approaching that sometimes, I think, when people are like, oh, well, they didn't do well, so they'll just take it again in the fall. Well, it's not really that straightforward, right? Because now you're dealing with a lot of emotion that is going to come into play. So it's not just, well, I need to take class and do the homework. Now you got to battle your demons in the process, right? And like adding battling demons to, you know, the syllabus. I mean, like, right, you know, your curriculum. I mean, how much, you know, this is this, you're just pencil and battling of demons. Well, but that makes me think, okay, so there's this process that before you can get to seeing failure as an opportunity, because, you know, we, we are people of experience and substance, and we have learned that that is often what it ends up being, right? You don't, get there instantly, right? There's this tunnel of emotion that you have to get through. And that made me, I was when I was thinking about our conversation, I realized I had never had a conversation about the place of grief in higher education, right? Because there's loss when you fail, that's a loss. I mean, it could be as small as a test. Okay, well, that was an opportunity, right? Within a course, or it could be failing an entire class, which is another loss. And it could be feeling out of a, a program. You know, you, you can't do this particular set of studies or it could be entirely having to leave an institution. Each of those is a loss. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, and you can answer this in, in so many different ways, is, is there or what is the place for grief in higher ed? Do we make that space for them? Or is that something that we simply give right back to them and and they do it. As far as the grief goes, I would say at a college in higher ed, there is no place for it. I think some of us, uh, myself, um, Will, you might find occasional islands uh, of safe places to grief, but, or to grief, but um, there is nowhere institutionally. You were supposed to take your shame and go off campus with it. At community colleges, to the highest ranked four-year and doctor-granting institutions in the country. Feel your shame on your own time. Not, not here. Will, what do you think? I agree with a lot of that. Um, from your from your personal, you know, failures and having to like, I guess you have to grab your bearing and be like, okay, I feel now I gotta get back at what I'm already supposed to be doing. I, I don't have time to, you know, really convalesce and look and see what did what I could have done better. I just gotta just push on and then deal with that at another, you know, space and time. And a lot of times that's I guess that's with the students and even with us as as um, educators and whatever role we play, 
Like a lot of times we we might miss an ass- something that we were assigned to do. And we were upset because, you know, I was, man, I forgot I was supposed to do that. And you have that moment where you're like, man, you're thinking about it, but then you got to go on to the next thing because you got something coming right behind it. So like TJ was saying, like, you really don't have that place where you could like, man, I mean, you could, sometimes you could go and you could sit in your coworkers office and talk to you, some of your coworkers and stuff like that. But see, even sometimes that's not a good thing because you might say something in their office and then you're hearing it in somebody else's office. So you really sometimes don't have that complete and total place where you could be like, okay, I could share this. I could put this down here. And then I don't have to worry about picking it back up again or somebody else picking up what I put down. You know, so sometimes that can be an issue. And I'm pretty sure it's an issue sometimes for the students. Um, I think because they, you know, a lot of, you know, the ones that's coming from high school, you know, they're used to their guidance counselor. And sometimes they can go talk to their guidance counselor and, and things of that nature. They don't really have a guidance counselor here. They kind of see us as that somewhat. And some of them will come talk in advising about, you know, you know, they'll be like, Mr. G, you know, I'm dealing with this and I'm dealing with that. And, and I try to listen and acquiesce today, you know, whatever they got going on. And sometimes you can do it, but sometimes you can't, especially when you're not, you know, you're not that certified person that could deal with certain things that they may have to deal with. So it, it can be a challenge for them to really like be able to put it out there and kind of move forward. Or even us, like I said, us ourselves, like when we have those small, it might be a small moment that we just frustrated about something, or it could be something big that, you know, we it's changes in the department is kind of causing us to be, you know, kind of upset about what's going on. So I, I, I do agree with TJ about that, that there's no real place where you can like, not in higher ed specifically, that you could be like, I could go here and I could share that and then I can unburden myself. You used a great word. Um, you said that they need to go convalesce. Um, and I'm thinking about where there is, you're right, there's no space for convalescence in, in higher education. You, you, you go away, right? Um, and convalescence has this nice sort of 19th century quality of like you go to a spa, you know, you go to the Alps and, you know, but that would be nice. But really, most of us are, none of us are doing that, right? But, you know, the students sort of have to go off and and convalesce according to their own needs. And, but then maybe they'll return. And the question becomes is upon the return, what's going to happen? You know, because I, I know that we have um, in our careers seen students who have repeated um, the same uh, challenging patterns and have never managed to um, to cross the next threshold. And others who have, even if it takes them time and effort, have slowly moved to a new stage. And others that have stunning breakthroughs, right? And they just burst through and and get to an entirely new place. And each of that is a very individual sort of moment and thing. And that's why I'm wondering, in your perspective, because both of you. I know, you know, TJ, you told me that you begin your course with the story saying, hey, spectacularly failed. That's that's your your phrase. Uh, and, and Will, I know that as you talk to all of your advisees, when you know that it's the moment you tell the story, what does that open up for students? Because I feel for some of them, Will, I think you said to me particularly, this is the first time anyone has ever said, you know, <laughs> there's life after failure. Yeah, that's true. Because, uh, I mean, I feel like when I do share that story, 
um, with them about those failures and the things that, you know, some was in, some were not in my control. Uh, but I think sharing that story first humanizes you because they always think of somebody in academia or whatever, like you, you probably never had this shortcoming or you probably never fell into this situation. It kind of humanizes you and let them know like, yeah, you know, I, you know, I was at school and yeah, I thought I was doing the thing. And then, you know, these torrential uh, issues start hitting me and I start not being able to fend off the situations and I end up being on academic suspension. I've been on academic suspension like you have. I've been on academic probation like you have, but I also got two master's degrees behind me. You know, I'm working on a, you know, I'm working on my educational doctorate now. So that just goes, I always go to share with them. I said, you may not get it on the time frame that everybody else gets it, but when you get it, you still have it. I was talking to a young man yesterday, like, and I was like, how old are you? I'm like 19. I said, bro, don't even worry about, you know, you might not finish this program in exactly uh, the prototypical two years, but the fact that you finish it is what makes the difference because some people, you know, don't finish. So I try to motivate them to do that. I was like, I didn't get my, I didn't get my associates till I was at, in my early twenties. I didn't get my, my bachelor's or my master's till I was in my mid twenties. I didn't get, you know, and, and now where I am now, you know, I'm still going to get it. Don't matter if I didn't get it on somebody else's timeline. So I always try to let them look at, you know, even though you fail, remember that you have your own timeline as far as what you're going to do things in. And, you know, they kind of, they kind of perk up and they're like, well, yeah, that makes, that makes sense to me. Cause I ain't got to do it when he did it or when she did it. But as long as I get it done, I still have it. And I think that's the importance of, of that has to be, um, expressed to them because a lot of times they feel like I failed and I'm, you know, my, my friend graduated at 22, but that's okay. As long as you graduate. And I, and I do share the story about the person from Midlands Tech, um, the older lady that had graduated. She was in her nineties, I think a few years ago, and she was 90 something. She graduated her associate. I like, if she could do it, you know, even at that advanced age, then don't get too down on yourself about where you are right now. The tyranny of a timeline. Right, you know, students often bring in these tyrannical expectations that they may have gotten from many places, right? It could be a family, it could be a larger culture that says, oh, well, of course, you're supposed to graduate high school and get a college degree and get a job, and then everything will be fine the rest of your life if you just do the, right? Or it could be personal expectation. You know, they've somehow set a goal for themselves that, again, is just tyrannical. So I hear you saying that when you say, I mean, even just, you know, in when they're looking at you in your office, you're saying, yes, I have been on this exact same probationary period and look at the wall behind me, that there is life after failure. And moreover, there's life, you know, that there that you you don't perhaps you give them some freedom from that timeline. TJ, how about you? What do you see when you to either one on one or in your court, you know, as you're teaching? When you tell stories about your own experience, um, what does that open up for students as in your part of the, the campus? I think it's similar to what Will was saying. It humanizes you. It makes you somebody who has lived a life, right? I mean, the, the longer I live, the more I realize that 
if you've had like this perfect little life where everything went well, um, you're probably going to be kind of unhappy later on because you you have missed something somewhere, right? Um, but I, I think that it gives them sort of a framework to think about it in a way that you don't really get anywhere else. And, I, you know, I understand why that would be, right? You don't want to like lead with, you know, <clears throat> well, when you fail, you know, you're going to go do X, Y, Z, right? Yeah, you know, I don't think that should be the like leading comment. Um, that's why I think telling the story is, is an effective way, right? It, when I say this happened to me, I'm not saying I expect it to happen to you. I'm just saying this has happened to me. And if that rings in a way that is helpful for you, then terrific. And if not, well, that's fine too. Yeah, also that this gives you a real, um, it hands back some agency to the student, which is to remind them that everyone's life is different. This is sort of the same thing that Will and I, I think we're just talking about a moment ago, which is everyone's timeline is different. Everyone's biography is different and it, it can look similar and yet be totally different. And they're, and you're essentially saying, if this is helpful to you, I'm handing it to you. Well, I think that the the timelines are useful, right? And I I think where they get in trouble is where they, as I think you described them, Claire, the tyranny of the timeline, right? And if you look at it as a useful sort of like, okay, well, this is a path, right? But I think a lot we look at it as the path. And that's where I think we get mistaken. Um, it, it you know it is important to just remember that um, one size fits all does not work for everybody, but it can be useful for a lot of people. Finding the utility, I think, and and that's that you know this the season of the podcast we're looking we're we're really diving into what does it mean to learn to learn, you know because that's learning to learn is one of the most foundational important things you can do, but that is an dense, complex skill, right? You know, like there are lots of little pieces that help you learn to learn. Uh, I think that the three of us in this conversation uh, have gone through plenty of hard knocks, <laughs> uh, but that means that all three of us have learned how we learn best and we have built up a tolerance for that learning. We're like, oh, this is the part that stinks. You know, uh, this is, I don't like this part of the learning process or, oh, this is the good stuff for me. Right. So according to your own experience, not only in your own biography, but as contact with so many students, because you guys have so many, um, have, uh, as a colleague of mine would say, have touched so many lives. Right. Uh, what do you think um, is the place of failure in the learning process. It doesn't always happen, but it's sure gonna happen sometime. I have a, a friend of mine, he's, he's a minister at my church. And he, one thing that he always quotes, he says, nothing beat a failure, but a try. So a lot of times people and, and students in general sometimes don't realize just because you, you know, you're trying to succeed, doesn't mean you're gonna, not gonna have moments of failure. But it doesn't mean you can't learn from those moments of failure. You know, like I said, it, you learn to get better. You learn, okay, I may have failed. For instance, I failed math 110. But now because I can go back and look at how I failed, when I take math 110 again, I can be successful at it. 
So sometimes looking back at those those ways that you fail, people don't f- failures are is the predecessor to being successful because you wouldn't know how to succeed if you didn't first fail that. So, so once you done fail that and you kind of, you know, you look at your, if you really look at your failure and don't, you know, sometimes, yes, you, in the moment, like we said earlier, you grieve it, but when you kind of move forward from that grief and be like, okay, well, how am I going to bounce back from what I failed in? You, you really, it becomes a learning tool for you. You know, it's just, it's, it becomes a significant learning tool so that you can say, okay, now let me see what I need to adjust. You know, I, I I took this wrong turn to get to this certain place I'm trying to get to. How can I get back on track and avoid taking that same wrong turn again? So um, I I feel like failure, you know, it is a learning tool. And sometimes, uh, and probably in general, I think more um, teachers or mentors or advisors or whoever are in students' lives should utilize that even from the beginning, you know, like, like TJ says, he tells them about, he failed spectacularly, letting them know in the beginning that I'm going I'm to tell you now, I didn't get here just because I was grade A and everything. I didn't, you know, I didn't make that perfect road and perfect pathway. I took the road less traveled by because I had bumps and potholes in the road that I had to go through and overcome till I got to where I am now. And letting them know that, yeah, you know, it, failure is, is is a part of you being successful, and you're going to have them, and making it um, making it okay to fail, because like like we talked, some of them don't feel, you know, they've been raised in a certain mentality, or they've been thinking of a certain way that I cannot fail, I don't have room to fail. But knowing that, you know, failure is a part of your educational journey, just not just in school, but in life and understanding that it's going to happen no matter how many times we try to avoid it. I mean, I done been on plenty of roads, but it, it and I tried to maneuver around, but sometimes you still hit that pothole. Sometimes you still hit that dead animal in the road. Sometimes you're still going to hit that thing you don't want to hit because it's there and you can't avoid it all the time. So making it real to them and helping them to understand that that's, you know, that's going to be a part of it. You know, I think that a that that tends to kind of alleviate some of the stresses that students, I feel like of all ages kind of come in with, as long as they know that, okay, you're going to fail, but it's okay. And you can get back up from it. I'm not a podcast director, but I have to tell you, that sounds like a great NPR ending to me. (laughs) (laughs) That was very good. I'll just give you the transcript and you can just line by line it, TJ. You can just. (laughs) Yeah. And so in the process of um, failing, it can be a positive, but it certainly never looks that way. It reminds me of what Winston Churchill said when he lost re-election in 1945, having led his country to victory in World War II, and the British voters summarily kicked him and his party out of office. Uh, His wife said, maybe it's a blessing in disguise, and Churchill said, well, if it's a disguise, it is very effectively disguised uh and if it's a blessing it is very effectively disguised well so what i hear you saying is that the everyday act of failure can become that there's a revolutionary way of thinking about it which is simply that it's part of a process it's not very nice but the ability for a student to be able to look directly at it and to find meaning in it becomes the true act of learning 
and so that they're able to go forward in a new way. What about you, TJ, as, as just someone who is just immersed in instruction? For you, what is the place of failure in learning that you've come to? I think something that occurs to me, but I don't really know what to do about it. And I think centuries of scholars have also sort of confronted and not had a good answer to it is that the the system that we use to assess is both necessary and so inflexible that it also accidentally hurts learning. You have to have a way to show whether or not somebody has learned, right? And so you have to assess, you have to give grades, but at the same time, because of the nature of it, a lot of times, and what Will and I have been saying, and you too, Claire, throughout this, is that learning is, or failure is part of the learning process, and that you try something, it doesn't work, so you try something else, right? But if you, you only get one shot at an exam, you only get one shot at a paper, you only get, right? And, you know, I don't, I don't think the answer to that is, oh, well, give them unlimited tries, right? There's a, there's something built into the system that conflicts, but I, and I don't know that anybody has really ever found a good answer to it. And I, I know that lots of scholars have looked at it, um, but I think that that is a big part of why when you fail, you know, you take your shame away from campus, um, which is also good for you, right? I mean, you know, if that was the place where everything went poorly, it's good to get away and, you know, uh, not be reminded constantly of it so you can give yourself some time and space between your emotions. But um, I think, you know, something that we should always be thinking about is can the system work better? Um, it clearly does not have an obvious solution or an obvious sort of answer, but you know, continuing to do that. For example, in my American government classes, the first exam can sometimes come as a shock <laughs> to them. Uh, and grades are typically worse on the first one. And so a lot of times I'll give them some way to kind of like replace it, right? Um, but you know, for, for faculty, you also have to like manage your workload, right? Um, and that's a very real part of it too, is that, you know, one, one of the reasons why you can't give them unlimited tries is who has time to do that? Who has time to keep up with it? Who has time to grade it, right? They don't have time either, right? You're, you know, you have missed something and now like all of your classes are moving on. The train has left the station. If you're not on it, you're out of luck. You know, I don't really know what you do with those two things, both of which seem re required, right? Learning requires failure and learning from the failure. But in order for the system of education to work, the trains have to run and they have to leave the station and you have to be on it. That's the work, right? Is to continue. If we're going to be part of higher education is to continually say, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Is, is this the way? Is there a better way? How can we continue to be effective and humane 
Maybe that's not a word we haven't really used yet, but I feel like it's absolutely very present in our conversation today. The two of you have constantly kept in front of you is what is humane, right? You know, you, you are gesturing constantly toward these people are human. I am human. I and 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 we're going to fail, and we're going to be, and we should talk about it in a humane way, right? We should continue to make what we do useful and also sensible to our lives. And that that makes me say, as you look forward, all of us, you know, are in the middle of our careers, right? You know, there there is time. We've learned a lot and we're going to keep on learning. What do you, either what do you see in the future or what do you hope for as you think about your work going forward um, and the way we collectively or you personally talk about failure in your work, what do you see ahead, either in terms of what you hope for or what you think you're going to do? I think that it's going to continue to be important to have those discussions about failure. I think me personally, I'm going to continue to have those discussions, especially, you know, especially when you end the advisement and you're like the first person they end up running into after admissions straight to advising. So I think that to continue to have those discussions is necessary. And then knowing when to mention it, because some people are not going to be as receptive, just, but, um, just having those conversations and letting them know that it's it's tangible, um, that it's going you know going to happen, and you know how to prepare yourself so basically build that you know that bubble wrap around yourself so when you do initially have those moments of failure, you know what I'm saying to kind of insulate yourself and say okay, I failed, but you know I can I can continue on. I mean I can go forward. Just making sure I have it intentionally. Might have to be a roundabout way and then knowing how to adjust and dealing with the different um, individuals and how they deal with stuff differently. You know, everybody, you know, nobody's a monolith. So you have to deal with people where they are, but still try to address those issues because regardless of whether you, you ha haven't been in higher, you know, haven't been to college in 10, 15 years or whether you uh, just came out of high school, fresh into college, you, you still need to understand the nuances of failure and the importance and and being able to embrace failure because sometimes that's an issue being able to embrace the fact that it's going to happen and and what you need to do not just not to avoid it but to make sure you learn from it so i feel like having those intentional conversations um, with students um with your with your coworkers peers or what have you about how you fail you know and how you kind of bounce back from it is I, I feel like I'm going to continue to do that because I think it, it's been helpful to me, especially in advising, because it, it allows me to share that story and it forces me to talk about it more and, and to kind of get out of my, you know, my former comfort zone because you don't like to talk about it. But it, it allows you to be able to share those um, situations. And, and like I said earlier, humanize yourself um, to the students and the people that you talk to on a daily basis. It takes great discipline, I think, to consider your own story over and over again. And but I think you're building up an incredible practice, right? Of of simply handling that, you know, kind of just touching it over and over again and finding new meaning and purpose for it to you personally. And then also giving that away, giving other people the opportunity to make of it what they need to, 
you're not telling them this is how you have to see it and you got to do it my way. You're saying this, this is what happened to me. Perhaps it will bring something to your experience. TJ, how about you? What, what do you think going forward about the future? Share the story and leave it out there for everyone. And, and then when talking with students who are sort of on the brink, as it were, you know, walking through it. And that's when it's the most useful is because I can, I can, I know what it's like to be in their shoes in that moment. And I can talk to them in a way that is not condescending. But at the same time is, you know, I can, you know, I can also say, yeah, you have to confront the failure and you have to deal with this and that can take some time. Right. Um, but you can, but you can come back from it. Um, but failure can be so important and so useful. You know, I knew, you know, I think about the hardest thing I've ever done, which was grad school and a PhD program. And uh, the vast majority of the people who go get a PhD or go on to get a master's or a JD or an MD or whatever have had stellar experiences in academics and then you get to grad school and if you don't know how to deal with failure it can really throw you for a loop and I was able to process a lot of grad school in a way that was different from a lot of my colleagues because I knew that it was just a moment in time it was a flash in the pan and how I responded to it literally gave it whatever power and length of time it took. But I came in knowing that, right? And a lot of, all of my colleagues uh, didn't. And I, you know, I, for me, I think that made the difference. Uh, I was able to have a perspective uh, that they, that they didn't have. It gives you a longer term perspective and a longer time horizon when you think about things that you know the like ups and downs of the day are almost irrelevant in the grand scheme if you can keep your head on and focus on what you want to do and know that when you stumble it's just a stumble and that you can come back from it i really like that idea of um where the horizon is you know, because some of our students are so young, um, they they simply have not had the horizon. It seems very near, right? You know, even though we know that their lives most likely will be much longer, because they can't imagine the expanse of time. And then for other people who are returning, they feel the pressure of what is behind them and the urgency to make the time that is left of them something different and important. And so it's funny that for both, for all these populations, where is the horizon? How are we seeing the arc of our lives, right? How are we considering, you know, how, how are we able to lift our gaze from this moment? Because failure really locks you in to, to, that, to that moment, and, and which makes sense. Are we able to pull our focus? Are we able to look up? And uh, I think in the work, of direct service to students, it sounds like that's that's what's happening here. Um, that the two of you are working each day in small ways when it comes to you, that you're ready, 
and you see what's needed and you're willing to say, this is my story. And um, if you need to move your horizon a bit, stand on my shoulders and maybe you can see over the fence to something new that's possible. Gentlemen, I've loved our talk today. Uh, it's been just great to for the three of us to be together. I would um I would love for there to be more of these kinds of conversations, to be able to take a few minutes and just kind of have a sustained conversation on something that's important to us. Wonderful. Thank you. conversation felt like a beginning to me. I think we're finding something very common. People are individually discovering a practice, but aren't aware that others are also doing it or connecting. Both TJ and Will have learned that telling their own stories around failure can have great meaning and usefulness for students in a good number of ways. Through this repetition over a career, they've learned to look directly at these painful experiences and see them afresh make them meaningful in new ways to themselves and to students. So I wonder, what would happen if we told these stories to each other? If we were more aware of this kind of practice around failure, what would it mean for the college to have a deliberate conscious narrative around failure that implicates people at every stage of education and life in the pattern of idea, attempt, failure, renewed plan, and attempt? I'm not sure what this would or could look like, but I sure am interested in this question. If we're doing this individually, and I know that others teaching and advising and supporting students at the college talk about their failures in productive ways, what happened if we linked up? Because I hear TJ and Will describing what sounds like a disciplined yet organic cycle of meaning making around failure. It begins with experience then early response, then moves through an inner narrative of reflection and deeper response, and then becomes storytelling to others that gives it a new quality and meaning. We often flinch from our failures. We don't like to look directly at them, and we certainly don't want to talk about them. Yet the discipline that TJ and Will have built up has allowed them some incredible strengths. Could we teach this cycle? to students? Could hearing about the failures of others transform their own from perceived hopelessness and final ending to a cyclical experience that will come and go over a lifetime? Grades, jobs, marriages, hobbies, all of these work and don't work. TJ and Will describe what happens when a grieving student gets a glimpse of the future by hearing TJ and Will talk about their pasts. The students realize they're in the room with someone who got through a time of failure and has succeeded later, is thriving. Suddenly, the lid lifts. It doesn't fix it. It doesn't make everything okay but it gives a sense of the scope of life and possibility ahead. What if our instructional community found ways together to help students lift that enclosing lid and see failure differently with greater and deeper perspective? In our first episode, I invoked the water wheel of learning. 
the eternal cycle of academic and seasonal year turning on, the water wheels of learning beginning to empty, filling, lifting, cresting, and emptying again, ready to turn again and refill in endless motion. What if students came to see their learning as a water wheel? That sometimes the buckets lift and pour into the places they need to go and bring life-giving learning to whatever part of life that needs it. But there are other times that the buckets don't lift, that the water is spilled, that things don't go to plan. And yet, the water wheel continues to turn. There are always buckets coming, even if they're smaller than usual or come more slowly. Or they're lifting something other than water. I hope you enjoyed this time with the three of us. Perhaps you'll be moved to talk about this topic with your peers. Or let me know what stories you tell around failure to your students. What do you think would help? Be possible. As always, the episode webpage has some resources related to today's conversation. So have a look and see what might be useful to you as you navigate the cycles of failure with your students. Next time, we're going to demystify a part of learning that seems so obvious and yet so few students actually know what on earth it means. Study. What do your students assume that means? Does that actually help them? We'll walk over to the Academic Success Center and talk to its director, Troy Mokovic, and one of its most dynamic tutors, biology adjunct instructor, Mike Mills. They'll both give us great insight into how our students arrive at the college thinking about study and how they can profoundly change this thinking to their tremendous benefit. I hope you'll join us as summer is a coming in, deeper into the web of our community.